We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. Maybe those businesses need to stop being bitches. Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. Redo, redo, go, go. And with the deep voice and the deep questions, D. Ferguson. That's not what it set out to be. That's, how dare you? And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. In part two of our hardware episode, our hostess with the mostest talked to Paul Lansky and Edu Antunia of Dapnode. Yeah, it makes it easier to run your own, own, run your own node for a okay. bunch of different services. And f- nicely enough, they just added Nimbus uh, to the stack. So running a Nimbus node is even easier if you have some hardware and you want to run yeah. an S2 client. What's also like, so you can also, what I liked about them in general is that you can just buy hardware. You can just, you can you don't have yeah. to like set it up, provision your own stuff. You can just buy a machine from them that then allows you to kind of pick and choose what node you want to run, IPFS storage, whatever, and then click it and run it. And also like configure it, which is a big part of the issues that I have with things like this. And I think that's what's, that was important for us to get through, at least in that latter half of the hardware infrastructure part was like, how do we get people to run stuff? And it's making it easy. When I click the shop button, oh, so that's something that D brought up. He was actually, he clicked the shop button during the interview, and then he was talking about the different hardware options. But when I click it right now, it just links back to the website. So there are no products available. I think that they are sold out, right? They were like Intel Nux, right? They're Nux-ish, if you buck-ish. I don't remember what the uh, acronym stands for. It's a, it's a little, I don't know what the acronym is, but it's like Next a little Intel machine. Not knock if you bug, that's what you're going for. Wait a second. We're not it's just like an HTPC. It's like a small form factor, like micro, I don't know, even smaller than what micro. Are you doing? We're not glazing over that. It's knuckish if you buckish. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. We're going to pause and we're going to accept that for being amazing. <laughs> All right. And then we're so you old enough to understand the reference. I don't get no. it. I'm not. That cool. song was adopted to horrible other songs since it came out. But anyways, I mean, it makes running a note easy, but it does still pull on the very same like string of nobody's going to know how to run their own node. Like they're just not. I mean, yeah, maybe there's going to be people that do, but those people are going to be working for companies. Yeah, but like go back to episode one, um, the first hardware infrastructure one, where TJ was like, back in the day with the old internet, like you know, you used to have to compile your Ethernet drivers and do all this other crap just to connect to the internet and all this other stuff. Or like, like now, computers come with everything; they, they come with all this stuff. And so, like his his idea of hardware in the future if blockchain technology takes over is that like your computer just has multiple terabytes 
built into it because it needs to store blockchains. And that's what it's for. And like, it, 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 this stuff comes with it. It knows where to go to connect. And hopefully, in his eyes, hopefully that's the case. And so making it easy over time in the long run is basically like you buy a computer, it comes with this stuff already. But it takes projects like Dapnode and all of the open source work to try and make it easy to get to there because right now, as a person trying to run nodes from home, it's, it's awful. How long do you think it's going to take to get to there? I don't know, man. It's even hard to see which one's going to be the winner, right? So, like, yeah, most, most of what we're trying to do with the series is come up with a general idea for people to understand how blockchain networks are even put together because there's so many different ways options places to go that we don't know which one's going to win yeah in terms of um like i i i have been peripherally involved in the space for years not deep enough for a long time to be able to understand the differences between ethereum and clones of it in terms of um how the networking layers differ, how the consensus layers differ, how the application layers differ. And it wasn't until this past cycle, you know, when I was trying to um, mint NFTs uh, on Solana that I looked into um, the process for minting NFTs on Ethereum, on Algorand. Um, and then I realized like there are there are some stark differences in terms of the infrastructure technology that is used between all three of those and you know many of the other ones i assume cosmos polka dot and whatever else is available so it's nice to like put together a series that not only helps me understand but also helps you know our audience everybody listening you understand uh, and come kind of come along with us for the journey of learning more about the space yeah I, I guess what I'm, what I was reaching for and hoping that we would get an answer to was the ability to, like, for somebody to set up their own secure transaction environment. I, I heard that acronym STE uh, a lot at one of the conferences I went to, and it was like a hardware-based secure transaction environment, and. They have them now, they have them in phones, they have them in you know, popular smartphones. There's secure transaction environments that which they're required to put in there because of, you know, if somebody's gonna have their financial information on their phone, like Apple Pay, then there needs to be a way for them to prove that the hardware is secure, right? And I was like, man, that's pretty awesome, but how can that be transferred into, you know, everyday crypto speak? What would be the hardware needed? What would be the actual pieces needed for me to personally build my own secure transaction environment. And we're just not going to get those answers. I don't think we're going to get those answers because I don't think anybody I think we will. Knows. I think we will, but it's going to be just for that, right? I want a secure transaction environment. Transaction for what? It's a good question. You know what I mean? Like we, we have that now. You can just, you can do that. Just, you can have a Bitcoin node running your home. Like you can do, what are the, one of the companies we, we interviewed on the Bitcoin podcast a while ago, like you can, you can run those things and do decently easy, easy transactions. I mean, countries are working on it right now. Like people are 
living off of hardware infrastructure for sending Bitcoin transactions. But like when you start getting into all of the different things all blockchains can do and wanting a device at home that makes it so you can securely interact with them, that's your grandma can do. We got a little ways to go, right? We can't even like decode contract metadata so that you know what you're signing well. Yeah. And until we get to situations like that, it's going to be real hard. But like we can do simple payments. We got that down pretty well. If you wanted to just do that, you could set that up so that your mom can tap her phone on a device in her in her home and pay for something or send it to somebody else. It's just not a lot of people that want to do that or like need to do that. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Well, what's the next layer? What do we wait before I start having speak like that? What I do like about Dapnode is that they are doing the hard work. What I mean by the hard work is they're making things easy for people. It is incre it is incredibly difficult to make something easy for someone. That sounds like it's like a paradox, but it is. And it's hard to make things easy. Not constrain them. Like I, when you put those two things together, right? Like you give people a lot of options and then make it easy for them to choose the right option. That's really, really, really hard. Because I can make it real easy for you to do something, but you're going to do it exactly the way I think you should. And you don't get any other options. Yeah. It's like me like me buying a phone for my grandma. She don't get options. She gets the phone that's the easiest thing for her to use in the world that she calls two people with. <laughs> and it has an alert button. That's it. Right? It's like, you, like, oh. I like giving them a bunch of options and then making it easy for them to use it is a very different scenario. And that's hard. I think that's what they're doing. You need to look forward to. We are currently not brought to you by Dapnode. <laughs> no, we are not brought to you by Dapnode. You might be though. But um, Corey, you can look forward to the one-word text that your grandma sends you that she means to text somebody else. It happens a lot. My grandma does that all the time. She'll just text I'm, me. My grandma can't text. North, and I'm like, "What did you say, Grandma?" And she's like, "I wasn't trying to talk to you." And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> anyway, I mean that's all I say about that note. I like what they're doing. I like they're doing hard work. I think it's going to be really tough for hardware to become less complex in crypto. I think, I think you know, what's the dream, Corey? That people can run it on, you know, everyday stuff that they can go to Best Buy and pick up, or I don't know who sells. What is that? Tiger Direct, or you know, people that sell computer stuff. Whatever the equivalent of Tiger Direct Micro Center? Micro Center. Uh, there's one. All the other ones are gone. Yeah, Micro Center is the only one that's left standing. But they're nice. You know, they have they have flash drive sales. You know, if you go in, you can you can pick up a flash drive when you buy like a like a SSD or NVMe drive. That's nice. Jesse's litmus test for nice, by the way. Really? <laughs> you can get free flash drives. Have you heard about DraftKings Marketplace? It's the place to snag the latest digital collectibles across sports, entertainment, and culture. DraftKings has released their first ever NFT fantasy game, Rainmakers Football. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFLPA. Now you can collect the hottest player card NFTs while playing free 
for millions in prizes. Right now, everyone can get their first full roster starter pack for free. And playing is simple. Buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Craft lineups of athletes from your NFT collection and earn points for touchdowns, receptions, and more just like daily fantasy football. Build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long to compete for millions in prizes. Download the DraftKings Daily Fantasy app now and sign up with promo code BITCOIN. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first full roster starter pack for free. Plus, play for millions in prizes all football season and build the ultimate NFT fantasy franchise with Rainmakers football. That's promo code BITCOIN. Build, play, win only at DraftKings. Contest entries dependent on type and number of NFTs held. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. If you haven't listened to the hardware episodes, go back, take a listen. But now onto the network layer with Julia Fanti, an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, and Hanno Cornelius, part of the VAC Research Development Group at Status. Hi, everyone. My name is Julia Fanti. I'm an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. And there I study uh, broadly the security and privacy of distributed systems. And one of the topics I've worked on for the last number of years is uh, is blockchains and, and blockchain technology. How did you get into that? What, what made you um, choose that course of scientific research? Um, it was actually kind of an accident. Uh, so I... I I was studying privacy for uh, most of my PhD. Um, and we were looking at designing algorithms for anonymous communication over peer-to-peer networks. And uh, we were kind of looking for applications of this work and, and realized towards the end of my PhD that this was uh, very relevant in blockchain networks where you have basically broadcast peer-to-peer networks. and uh, there, and people care about privacy uh, in, in any financial network and also in, in blockchain networks. So that's kind of how we got started uh, along that track. Can you take a step back a little bit and and try to give our audience an explanation of what a peer-to-peer network is and how that's differentiated from, um, the, I guess, the standard type of networks people think about when they think about the internet? Yeah, definitely. Um, So a peer-to-peer network is what we call an overlay network. So this means that there's kind of an underlying network that connects everyone. So in this case, that would be like the internet. So if we think of everyone who's on the internet, any two hosts or devices can communicate with each other. Um, Now, an overlay network is basically taking a subset of those nodes on on the underlying network of the internet. So let's say we consider those nodes as the set of devices that are running a Bitcoin node. That's a a subset of the total number of people on the internet or of devices on the internet. And uh, now those Bitcoin users or Bitcoin devices are going to try to connect to each other in in an overlay network um, that allows them to communicate specifically for the purposes of running this Bitcoin application. Now, um, in principle, they could all communicate with each other, but what's done in practice in these peer-to-peer networks is that each device that wants to join the Bitcoin network is going to connect to some number of other other nodes that are running Bitcoin, basically. Um, 
So what you end up with is, is kind of a, a subset of the underlying network um, that is using the underlying protocol. So they're still connected via like TCP or, or UDP or whatever. But in addition, they're running other functionalities on, on top of that that are specific to the application that, that is using this peer-to-peer -peer network. So in the case of Bitcoin, this would be things like forwarding transactions, um, for example. Hmm. I got a question for you. Why do blockchain networks like prefer peer-to-peer -peer networks over like traditional ones? Yeah, so peer-to-peer um, -peer networks have two big advantages for blockchains. One is that anyone can join. Um, this isn't necessarily the case, but for, for most peer-to-peer -peer networks, they're implemented in such a way that anybody can join, which is a big draw for permissionless blockchains like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, and the second main advantage is that they are de decentralized. So they don't have, they don't require any central party to like manage the network. Um, for example, uh, there, there's no third party that's deciding that this node is gonna be connected to this other node, for example. Uh, and that's also really important in blockchain networks because the whole premise is decentralization. You're trying to build something that doesn't require coordination from a central party. Oh. Thank you. I'll ask, uh, I'll ask a third question. How is the current infrastructure laid out and is that beneficial for blockchain networks? The current infrastructure, you mean like the, the internet? So we're talking about like the actual like switches, like Cisco, you know, ma manufactured mm -hmm. networking gear that, you know, runs in all of the urban cities and connects everybody. So, you know, how the home routers connect to each other, but then they all kind of, um, Beyond that, like I guess, where does yeah. where does the connection go, and and mm -hmm. how do how do we create this overlay network on top of the physical infrastructure? Yeah, so um, broadly, we can think of the internet as being organized in tiers. Um, so at the bottom, we have clients, which would be like your home network or like an enterprise network. Um, then on top of that, we have like regional internet service providers or ISPs. Um, so this would be like what, what we connect to from our home network, we're connecting usually to a, a regional ISP. And then the regional ISPs are connected to each other through a, a backbone ISP. And these are like large international organizations that are connecting networks, across, laying fiber under the ocean and so forth. Um, so basically when, if I'm trying to send, uh, I, I think the, the main, thing to keep in mind about how the internet is structured is that things are roughly based on geography. So like if I want to send, if I want to connect to a server, let's say in Germany, um, my, my packet's not going to travel exactly like the bird flies, um, but it's roughly going to, to uh, fo follow geographic constraints. Um, and of course this can be affected by things like routing and, and so forth, but for the most part, this, this is the case. Um, now, this is kind of different from how peer-to-peer -peer networks are structured, because in the Bitcoin network, for example, um, if I want to join the Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer network and I, uh, let's say, decide to join or decide to peer with a particular other node, which is identified by its IP address, um, I don't have any information about the location or I don't use any information about the location of that node. So I could, for example, be connecting to all nodes that are located in China. So what this means, uh, the implication here is that if I now 
decide to go to a coffee shop and, and buy coffee, um, and I produce a Bitcoin transaction, and if all of my peers are located in China, which I don't know because everything's kind of hidden in that sense, my transaction is first going to have to travel to China before it can reach the, the barista. Um, so the, the transaction has to travel using the underlying internet infrastructure, which is roughly geography-based, and, and it takes longer for the packets to travel long distances than it would to travel short distances. So, you know, if I'm if I'm producing this transaction and trying to broadcast it over the network, it first would have to travel to China, and then eventually it will percolate back to um, back to my barista, who might be connected to other peers in this peer-to-peer -peer network. If I could, please rephrase that and but in different words, like the overlay, the way the overlay ch chooses, how it chooses which peers to connect to is differentiated from the geographical based hardware infrastructure that makes the internet. So like the internet as it's constructed, tries to optimize for routing packets around, um, geographically based. So if I'm near my barista, it'll try to just optimize for that. But if I'm using some overlay network, um, the way that it's choosing peers, I was most often than not a distributed hash table arbitrarily chooses people. And those can be anywhere in the world, which kind of throws away that physical infrastructure optimization. And that's some of the trade-off you have when trying to use a peer-to-peer -peer network on top of the physical infrastructure we have today across the world. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think one thing to point out is that this isn't a fundamental constraint. You can actually do things that encourage uh, like physically local peering. Um, so for example, there's been some work in the, in the research community on uh, trying to help blockchain peer-to-peer -peer networks ensure that you peer more with nodes that are physically close to you. And this has the advantage of reducing the latency of transactions or the time it takes your transaction to reach everyone else in the network. Um, but that's that's still like in the research domain. That's not commonly done today. What is that called? Is that like mesh networks, or is that something completely differentiated? Um, so this is this is a technique called perigee. Um, it came out I think a couple of years ago. Um, so mesh networks are um, mesh networks are indeed using locality and are uh, are peer to peer networks, um, but mesh networks aren't are not typically used for blockchain networks as far as I know, but I could be wrong about that. Not yet, no. <laughs> What's a, I have a question, like what makes a mesh network? I'm kind of a noob to these things. So usually when I say mesh network, I'm trying to look fancy in front of my friends or my parents, but like, what's the difference between a mesh network and like, you know, Wi-Fi? I really want to know. So now I don't just, you know, give the appearance of fancy. I actually know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so a mesh network is a network, uh, they're also called ad hoc networks. Um, so it's basically a network where you are peering with physically close devices. Um, so people have used mesh networks a lot in like, so they, they've used it for a lot of different reasons. Um, in some cases, they've used it to bring internet connectivity to cities uh, without needing to rely on an on an ISP. So the idea is that, uh, for example, I like my home router could be used to uh, forward information to other people who, who need internet access. So basically everyone's helping each other 
get access by, by connecting to each other in this decentralized peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, they've also been used in protest settings, like um, government protests. Um, your cell phone can connect to other cell phones, uh, or a lot of them can. And so people have built actually mesh networks where of cell phones that are that are connected to each other and are able to relay messages, are able to set up like communication platforms over, over these mesh networks. So they're um, they're a lot more flexible than existing dedicated hardware infrastructure, um, but they're also harder to manage uh, and have generally higher latency. Okay, thank you. Now I'm gonna sound like a pro. I like it. Are there other trade-offs associated with using peer-to-peer um, -peer networks or more distributed kind of topologies for relaying messages across a network outside of outside of the um, one you mentioned kind of with the uh, not necessarily taking advantage of geographical infrastructure? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I would say security is, is a big one. Um, you have less visibility into the topology of the network and like whether nodes are, are misbehaving. So like one example of this is um, in a lot of permissionless blockchain protocol, also permissioned, in a lot of blockchain protocols, um, nodes are supposed to maintain a certain number of connections. So they're supposed to have like some number of outbound connections, which are connections that they initiate. They're supposed to accept up to a, a some upper bound on in incoming connections. And a lot of nodes, what, what we've found through uh, kind of years of research, not we meaning I, but like the research community has found through years of research that uh, a lot of nodes are not obeying these protocol specifications and will create what's called super nodes that are basically connected to all of the publicly available nodes in the network. And it's very difficult. It can be difficult to identify these kinds of misbehavior. Uh, that, can, like the kind that I just mentioned, can be fairly benign, um, depending on why they're doing it. Um, but there are other types of protocol misbehavior that are very difficult to detect in a decentralized setting. Whereas if you had like a central network coordinator, they would have more visibility into that and would be able to cut that node out of the network. So I think that's one of the another big trade-off that that comes with the benefits of decentralization. This might seem like a novice question, but do you have to tie a transaction to an IP address? Um, so because the transactions are being spread over a peer-to-peer -peer network, um, there's always going to be one or more nodes in the peer-to-peer -peer network that, that are like the first ones to introduce the transaction. Um, so in that sense, yes, a transaction does get associated with some some IP addresses. Um, what you can play with is which IP address is that? Is it yours or is it someone else's? And how does that how does that information get passed to a potential adversary depending on their capabilities? So for example, like if the adversary had full knowledge of the entire peer-to-peer -peer network and let's let's say we're not using any third-party services like Tor. Um, if the adversary could see everything that was happening in the network at every point in time, they would be able to pinpoint the source IP exactly. So a lot of the work that's been done in this space is really around trying to understand if the adversary has a little bit less visibility, so we have a weaker, but hopefully more realistic adversarial model, uh, what can you do? Can you 
provide any protections. Mm. Is there like a solution to kind of combine mesh networks in terms of like rolling identities? So like rather than have, um, then use, I guess, the traditional internet infrastructure can, is it possible to have like a uh, more ad hoc network where uh, each node, their identifier on the network has some degree of disposability to it? Um, and then, um, you know, once transactions are sent out, then, you know, maybe they re-roll a new uh, identifier. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not very um, knowledgeable about network limitations, but I don't know. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, certainly, you could imagine solutions where you're using a mesh network to, like, move your transaction to a physically different location, and then the transaction eventually gets propagated from that other location. I, I think it's possible. I mean, there's challenges always associated with setting up mesh networks, but let's suppose that that's taken care of. That's certainly possible. Um, and it, it is generally harder for adversaries to infiltrate mesh networks everywhere. Like yeah. you have a locality, you have a locality problem. Like if an adversary wants to infiltrate a, a network on the internet, it's just a matter of spinning up nodes. Like we can do that sitting from, from our homes. Yeah. Um, but, um, but if you want to infiltrate a mesh network, you have to be physically present. And so that's harder to do at scale. Um, I think that's the main added cost to it, to an adversary. So like in theory that, that, that something like that could help. Um, the key, the key is that a, you need to account for like, what are the adversaries capabilities? Are they able to infiltrate your mesh network? And B, do you actually have enough local nodes around you to set up a mesh network that's going to be effective and that's going to be able to transport your transaction far enough away, um, prior to it getting broadcast over, over the peer to peer network. Have you seen the, uh, the helium project where they incentivize putting uh, nodes to connect to and you know, more um, isolated locations, would something like that be able to carry like a transaction? That's a great question. I, I'm like f familiar with the helium project, but I haven't thought about it in this context. Um, okay. yeah, I would need to think about it. Well, they have aspirations of, uh, moving the network, um, beyond kind of small, late, small bandwidth IOT devices. Mm -hmm. Um, in the event that that happens, then maybe, but currently the, the, the bandwidth is basically long range, low, low bandwidth, um, for doing differentiated IOT applications. So not for message propagations for blockchain networks. And as far as I can tell, we've looked into it for, for status, for various kind of, um, ad hoc network solutions and didn't quite make sense. Mm -hmm. So what are you working on now? What, what, uh, you know, What's uh what are you doing on the daily? Um, let's see. So very recently one of my students um let let a paper on um on understanding latency manipulation in in blockchain networks. Um so basically he was looking at how can an agent control their latency uh with respect to other nodes in the network. And there's various reasons why nodes might want to do this. Um, like they might do it from the perspective of trying to, first of all, just hear about transactions and blocks faster. 
but they could also do this if they're trying to launch an attack, uh, like if they're trying to eclipse another node. Um, so just as an aside, an eclipsing attack is when you try to control all of a, a node's peer connections. So like, for example, if I, if I want to attack one of you and I try to ensure that I control all of the nodes you're peered to, then I can effectively censor your transactions, cut you out of the network, make you think that the blockchain looks one way and uh, when it actually looks another. So these kinds of eclipsing attacks can be easier if you're able to uh, reduce your latency to, to a particular node. And we show how, how that works in, in this paper. Um, and it's also relevant for like front running. Um, so uh, front running is this phenomenon by which uh, basically no blockchain nodes try to manipulate other users' transactions, um, manipulate the timing of, of transactions in order to basically take advantage of other, other people's transactions that they've already made. So like I might see that you made a transaction um, where you're buying some number of tokens and I try to stuff my transaction in before yours gets processed in order to, um, to benefit. So these kinds of front-running attacks are can be very sensitive to your network latency. And so in, in this recent work, we're kind of exploring to what extent that uh, that can be done and, and how. Wall Street had the same issue, right? A long time ago when they were trying to shorten lines to the stock exchange. Physical, physical lines, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a movie about that. It's actually really good. Where they they like, had the barrier line directly through like rock and stuff like that. I forget what it was called. I'll have to look it up. Um, yeah, like the finance industry spent a lot of money trying to shave off you know nanoseconds from uh, of latency, but of communicating prices, trades, and that hasn't really been an issue in blockchain network in a lot of blockchain networks so far, just because the confirmation times were high and so like the network latency was, was small in comparison but now we're starting to see applications where like really fine grain differences in latency can matter uh, for example for strategic trading so as a blockchain says that they have a higher you know transactions per second throughput does that mean that in terms of latency um, again to your point those who are positioned to reduce that latency cost have the higher advantage in terms of front running those those transactions more effectively yeah reduce reducing your latency um reducing your latency is is a, is useful for for a lot of different applications as i mentioned and and one of them we think is uh, strategic trading um, so like in, in an auction it means that you can learn faster about other people's bids and submit your own submit your own bids faster Basically, no, like knowing more information faster is, is always a good thing in, in any kind of strategic game. And Jesse, to, to add on to your question there, uh, more often than not, when you read consensus research papers, the claims of transaction per second throughput or um, finality times are typically based on an assumption that completely ignores message propagation times. They assume that um, the decision to be had has already been um, distributed across all the peers that are coming to consensus. So it will kind of remove that um, additional latency of message propagation. Once again, like this part of the stack, typically ignoring the consequences of this, of the, of the technology below it. Yeah, there has been a lot of like academic 
research that does compute like consensus times or confirmation times as a function of, of the network capabilities. But I agree, a lot of a lot of projects do ignore that. And it's, um, yeah, it's not strictly correct, I think. I think it's, 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 it's currently, ref it's, it's refreshing now that that seems to be not nearly as prevalent as it used to be. Like the level of academic rigor for papers coming out has gotten tremendously better than say like 2012, 2013, right? Like, and, and also the arguments and, and amount of effort going into trying to figure out how to make these networks better is way better than it used to be. I mean, you're an example of this, right? Uh, th thank you. Uh, there, yeah, there's a lot of really great researchers in this space. Um, we're seeing a lot of yeah, fantastic minds <laughs> working on these problems. What are you most excited about when you like when you do research in this area and you learn about new things? What what area of, of research gets you most, uh, I guess, optimistic for the future of blockchain networks and peer to peer networks? I'm going to answer a slightly different question, um, but one area that I've been really interested in lately, um, I, I don't know what this means for the future of, of blockchain networks, but one area I've been really interested in is centrally banked digital currencies. Um, and a lot of the central banks around the world have been looking at using blockchain technology to implement centralized digital currencies. And I think it's been very interesting to see some of the design choices they're making and like to what extent they're actually using blockchain uh, technology um, and some of the differences that come about because of the fact that these are at some level centralized. Um, so there's like cross-border cross border variants that are not fully centralized and that have more of a decentralized aspect, but a lot of the like domestic um, centrally banked digital currency systems are fundamentally centralized. And it's been interesting to see a little bit about like their choices around adopting variants of blockchain technology. Um, that's most of the questions I have. Is there anything that you would have wished us to ask that we didn't? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, great questions, fun, fun discussion. <laughs> In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management, scams, and hackers. Our new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. Check out Zengo and you'll find an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which until now had only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. And don't forget that Zengo has legendary in-app 24-7 live support with real humans. Zengo is the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secure. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com slash tbppod and use the code TBPPOD to get 20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Z-E-N-G-O dot com slash TBPPOD, code TBPPOD, for $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, tell us about who you are, where you come from, what you do. Uh I, I mean, I, just before this, I gave you a half a family history, but uh, other than that, I'll say, um, yeah, I'm Manu, I'm uh, 
in the VAC research and development group. I'm working on something called WACO. Uh, it's basically a suite of protocols uh, which enables generalized peer-to-peer uh, -peer messaging, saying it's generalized because it's not focused on one specific application. It aims to be useful to multiple uh, applications that can benefit from a peer-to-peer -peer communication layer. And yes, we believe WACO protocols to be the communication layer for Web3. Um, we have a strong focus on privacy and security, uh, censorship resistance. Um, uh, what else can I say? Um, oh yeah, we believe in open access, of course, uh, kind of like a democratizing uh, effect of 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 peer-to-peer -peer networks. I want to be useful on on uh, as wide an array of devices as possible, so anyone or or at least almost anyone can can have access, even if they are on uh, resource-restricted devices. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> well, welcome Should to I show. say something more about VAC and, and what VAC Yeah, is? why not? I mean, it's uh, it's not very uh, complicated. VAC is, was basically born as a sub-team uh, within Status. Um, it, basically, to find out at that stage why peer-to-peer -peer networks, at least for messaging, was not working. Um, and then that spun off into, into trying to find solutions. Um, specifically for the scalability issues uh, that we saw in flat-rooted networks, uh, which are basically networks that uh, have such unstructured routing that uh, all peers try and communicate uh, and send all information to all other peers in the network, which creates this massive amplification of, of information in the network and clogs everything up. Um, so we came up with um, a couple of systematic solutions um and then eventually with this suite of protocols which we call waku could you like how do you describe peer-to-peer -peer network in general like do you have like a do you have like a go-to general <laughs> like description of what a peer-to-peer -peer network is I, I mean if i uh, usually i would just say it's a, it's a distributed architecture of networking with no central servers um and no uh, intermediaries Usually, I would also say uh, everyone in the network acts or has the potential to act as both client and server um, within um, that uh, the set of rules or that protocols that you've designed. Is that clear enough? <laughs> Why do we use them over the client architecture, uh, you know, model? I'm very glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I mean, there are many, many reasons why people use it. I mean, one, one very obvious um, reason is this, that it gives control back um, to the actual users of a network and removes the centralized uh, uh, control from a network, right? So peer-to-peer -peer networks are much more fault tolerant um, because there's no central point of failure. Uh, they by nature censorship resistance. Uh, resistant. This is why the first uh, use cases of peer-to-peer -peer networks used to be in uh, environments where censorship was to be expected, um, uh, because there is no central server to shut down. Right? Um, peers can always find ways to connect to each other, or should in well-designed um, protocols. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I think I mentioned the, the fact that there's no central intermediary means that you are mostly resistant to uh, the type of collusions that you can also see um, when someone has central control of all data in a network and uh, trying to manipulate what happens in a network what users see um, so it is about uh, i would say mainly about um, the principle of uh, 
giving back control um, and ownership to those participating in the network. So one thing that um, one thing that comes to mind is the the difficulties that I've seen peer to peer networks have with um, the hardware part of the networking infrastructure. So when you know when you see TPS increase on a lot of these new L1s, Solana in the past bull market, um, and a few other ones, you don't really think about the the minimum hardware requirement increase and where uh, the different infrastructure uh, portions are hard are 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 putting most of their computational efforts on. So when when you when you thought when you think about like networking, uh, what piece of hardware in the in the computer is something that kind of goes up as the uh, number of peers on the on the network increase in terms of scalability? Is it the CPU that takes it? Uh, right. So they, as I said, the holy grail is to to not have an increase um, in resources at all as as the network. Right. That it, this is assuming, of course, that you've reached some kind of settled state where you are already kind of like uh, participating in the network. Um, so theoretically, what would happen is there will be a little bit more uh, CPU um, when you BS join the network, um, and uh, that can be um, mitigated by having uh, you only be responsible for the peers in your neighborhood. This is, in other words, the peers that you are aware of, right? Um, and then, of course, I think the one um, that's uh, most affected will usually be bandwidth. And this has been the limiting factor, I think, the main limiting factor we've seen um, in terms of resource issues and, and, and actual hardware limitations. Um, the most um, important aspect of, of uh, our design of, of messaging protocols has been um, reducing amplification factor in the network. And the amplification factor mostly refers to bandwidth, right? I mean, it's always implies some processing, of course. Um, but it, it's, it's the, uh, the amount of data um, on the network um, that needs to be passed around um, that we need to limit in some way. So do you see fundamental limitations to building peer-to-peer networks that we just have to deal with in terms of scale? Um, like if we're, if, if, if it's taken for granted or like as an assumption that blockchain networks have to be built on peer-to-peer networks in order for them to be sufficiently decentralized and resilient to attacks, then what are the fundamental trade-offs that we have to make in order for, for, for blockchain networks to exist? Like, what are the consequences of that decision? Yeah, I mean, a good point. If you are going to introduce um, uh, something that allows you better scalability, um, you're likely going to have to make a trade-off on another um, area. And um, an example here, is, um, uh, for example, end-to-end delay between messages, right? So what we do in order to get um, a better bandwidth performance is to have slightly more structured routing. So we have a self-organizing network um, that limits the amount of, of, um, 
of messages that each peer have to send in the network and kind of like in a sense tries to distribute that risk responsibilities in a in a decentralized way but uh, if you speak about um overlaying more structure on this network you're bound to have uh, more hops between two ends right um because you've distributed the responsibility a bit better um and that introduces something like delay um there's also an extra overhead of processing which i mentioned earlier because there's a little bit more um that needs to be done um in order to to uh, kind of interpret and send the control messages that's required for the self-organizing structure to work when you mentioned the the topology of peer-to-peer -peer networks not necessarily being always client to client but they're needing to be at some points uh, nodes that have like I guess higher compute resources to act as, as intermediary servers or connecting points between you know groups of nodes that collect around um, some sort of you know topic um, those those hardware uh, constraints are those so you mentioned bandwidth being the the, the largest constraining factor for um, scaling up you know a number of users around a given topic how do you guarantee that, let's say, as as a as a messaging app scales from you know thousands of users to millions of users, how do you how do you uh, distribute the bandwidth uh, constraints so that the the system scales properly? Yeah, so I should just maybe clarify when I say bandwidth being the constraint, I mean purely on the P two P networking layer. That is. Uh, at least in my job domain, uh, my network, of course, depending on your application, um, they might be much, much higher uh, uh, resource um, needs, uh, especially in terms of kind of like processing power um, that you need in order to actually fulfill this application that you're trying to run in a P2P manner. Um, how do you distribute bandwidth? So uh, what is a good example there? Um, if you can find a way, um, for example, for all nodes in a network um, to, to eventually discover all or almost all of the other nodes in a network, or be able at least to discover these nodes, um, you can introduce some kind of randomization um, in, in terms of how nodes um, uh, kind of connect to each other. Uh, which should mean that in a probabilistic kind of model, you should get a better distribution of how nodes are connected. Um, you uh, tend to limit um, the number of, of nodes that could be connected to a single node um, with some um, strategies uh, that happens when this node reaches its kind of quota of, of connections um, so that you, in a sense, then um, incentivize that node to uh, find other random nodes to connect to, right? So that uh, these, these nodes, uh, a, a node trying to connect to the network or being introduced to the network does the work necessary to find a good spot for itself in the network where it can contribute um, by being uh, well-connected um, and where it can also benefit from being well-connected. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I quite understand. So there's some sort of optimization that each node can do to reposition themselves as intermediaries of, of messaging or 
I guess I would say that's uh, some description. Though uh, we are at, at risk now of, defi of defining one, uh, like one or two specific protocols. And um, what we use is something called um, GossipSub, which was designed by Lepi2PM. And the idea behind GossipSub is that peers have an out-of-band method of finding uh, nodes to connect to. And what we do there is we try and make this as, as random as possible, um, so that there's no uh, kind of like neighborhood effect. Um, where nodes only connect to, or, or tend to connect to the same peers. Um, so that happens out of band. And then what happens is if you are trying to connect to a network, a, a peer will actually not allow, let's say, more than 12 other nodes to connect to it, right? Um, okay. In a what we call a full message peering uh, manner. Um, and what will happen is if you're trying to connect to a peer that has already uh, 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 reached its maximum of 12 full message peers, it will uh, give you an indication that uh, it's unable to accommodate you. And what you would try and do is you would try and use various of these out-of-band methods to try and find other peers to connect to. And in some way, this becomes um, trial and error until you find it. But if you have enough randomization, um, it's likely to work out. Um, what also happens then is, um, which gets added and makes it way more complex, is even though you might not receive the full message from these peers, um, they might still uh, send you some information about which messages they have seen. So peers gossip, and this is where the, uh, the, the gossip in gossip sub comes from, um, gossip about uh, which messages they have seen um, to much more than just these 12 peers that they sent all the messages to, right? And also in a randomized manner so that you can kind of like built this probabilistic model that everyone will start seeing um, if there are certain parts of the network that they're not well connected to, right? And peers will then try and create connections to these areas of the network um, that they have determined with this kind of like gossiping method that they don't have strong connection to, um, if, if, if that makes sense. Um, it's some, like I see it as somewhat of like a self-healing way of of trying to maintain a specific amount of connectivity throughout a peer-to-peer -peer network exactly exactly it's not uh i wouldn't say it works flawless but it works surprisingly well um uh, and it, and it's really neat to see these these peers um self-organized of course there's some other challenges there in terms of this implies that peers a as i said can discover each other and b that they uh that they're able to participate fully in this these kinds of exchange um yeah, we have a problem, for example, with uh, browser-based peers um, in that it's not easy. It's not impossible, but it's not easy to accept uh, uh, incoming connections on a browser, right? If you're running um, a peer inside a browser, it's it's difficult to, to receive incoming connections. Um, and then these peers become uh, less useful in the network um, because people might even discover them, but they can't really uh, create connections to them. Um, and this model relies on the fact that peers can discover each other and make strong connections in a bi-directional manner. Um, I think I missed the reasoning why uh, it's difficult to connect to some peers through the browser. Uh, well, uh, peers that reside in a browser, there's a limitation in terms of accepting new incoming connections on a browser, right? I mean, uh, I'm, you'll have to ask um, our JavaScript team um, the exact challenges they face there. Um, but uh, this is one of the actual problems that we're struggling with. 
Um, so if you have uh, peers that can create connections, you can create a connection pretty easily from a, an application that runs inside a browser. Um, but browser-to-browser uh, -browser connections are, um, are, are very difficult. Um, I mean, there's some uh, web transport, but I think that only works for Chrome to Chrome. Um, you have WebRTC, that takes a long time to set up. But oftentimes, if you open a peer-to-peer -peer client inside a browser, you don't want to wait for a long time for this to be set up. And uh, yes, if peers can uh, create outgoing connections, but they cannot accept incoming connection, it means those peers won't ever be able to really connect to each other, right? Um, and that uh, it's a problem that we are currently trying to solve. So back in the day, like I remember people timing out when I was on IRC. Um, so like, are you saying like those problems in terms of um, peers losing connectivity or having trouble, you know, connecting uh, to new peers to get into, you know, like chat rooms, that's a result of, I guess, some degree the of the... you've chosen to go through. Mm. Uh, yes. So I, I think what you're getting to is the fact that a peer-to-peer -peer network mostly now is an overlay over existing network infrastructures, right? Um, and uh, and uh, uh, has certain requirements on this underlying network infrastructure. So most peer-to-peer -peer networks now is basically over the internet, right? Um, you have an IP address that you you connect um, using these protocols. Um, and any of the limitations which you have on that level um, it kind of like bubbles up uh, to the peer-to-peer -peer layer. So choose your pipes wisely. Choose your pipes wisely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember, you know, a long time ago, it used to be uh, I could run a Bitcoin client on like anything, really. And then, <laughs> and then you know, as these new networks came out, um, it's like, oh, wow, I need to build a machine specifically to run a node for this network because this is no longer uh, something that can run on you know anything the the hardware constraints are are much higher and now no one in my house can stream netflix because my <laughs> x node is taking up all the bandwidth <laughs> not me personally i'm fine but <laughs> i think we need to get to this uh, idea of of designing uh, protocols now for scalability and for and future proofing it by making sure it's it's useful for for uh, multiple purposes um uh yes my I, I'm confident that we're getting closer to that point. Um, yeah. I definitely want to like reiterate the one thing you said, which I think is like is is the holy grail, and that is creating protocols that allow people to join the network and not add burden to everyone else in the network that already exists. Yeah. Coming up in part two of the network episode, we talk privacy and its applications in the network layer. Cry cut. I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. <laughs>